0: Hi, I'm going to take this opportunity to hop around and see if I uh, can get this done over here uh, this week. I do want to thank all those who have uh, contributed in the last 10 days or so. We're close to two-thirds, 60%, something like that, of where I want to be financially in order to make, as I say, to make this work over here with our expenses and everything. I hope I can continue to do this, uh, but I can't do it on my own. Uh, so, I do appreciate very much those who send the donations already, and I hope and encourage the others who will do so, especially decent size. <laughs> That'll uh, put us to where we want, and then we don't have to bother with this anymore. Otherwise, it's a little bit difficult over here. Uh, as I mentioned earlier this week, is uh, somebody in my show, Rabbi Levin, told me that uh, the yards of the Chavis Yard, and that's somebody I can talk about. Here we're dealing with some very, very interesting person and unusual. I know to the listener, perhaps, all these guys sound a little alike. I hope they don't, but they may, and uh, they certainly are not. Everybody's very different, and uh, not only that, but the times and the places are different, and here I'm talking with somebody. I don't believe I've done this yet, but somebody was a big Rav, or that might be a great scholar, let's put it that way, uh, in Western Germany, in the Rhineland, in the 17th century, in the 1600s, uh, it was, the Chavisir, and Bachrach, uh, uh, or Chaim Bachrach. Later in his life, he got six and he named New York. Uh Bachrach is a well-known Jewish family. By the way, all these are nothing but little stupid towns in, in, in uh, the Rhineland. Bachrach is the name of a, little, a tiny city in Germany. Landau is the name of a tiny city in Germany. They're all in the same area. A lot of these names you think are Jewish names are really just little stupid towns somewhere in Germany that old Ashkenaz, old, 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 picked up many centuries ago and the family still carries it down till today. So Bachrach is a Geisha town in the, in, in the Rhineland. Anyhow, uh, today we're dealing with someone, as they say, quite unusual, not not your typical uh, career path. Uh, Chaim Bachrach is from, uh, first of all, he's Ashkenaz, obviously. Second of all, he's born in Moravia, which I've spoken about here a couple of times. Remember I told him, Morale used to be chief rabbi in Moravia. Moravia an area that I went to, pff, Nicholsburg, on my last trip this past summer. It's uh, next to Bohemia, it's a smack in the belly button of Europe, and it's an area very old Yekish, but not in the German way, in the old Ashkenaz way. It's its own type of Judaism, which no longer exists. However, here's someone who's born uh, in 1638, about 20 years or so, approximately, or 30 years after the death of the Maral, and he's like a grandson, great-grandson of the Maral, and I talked to you yesterday about his grandmother, who was a famous granddaughter of the Maharal, so however we work all that out, was a big Talmud Chacham, Talmid Chacham, or whatever you want to call it. And um, somebody from a very rabbinic family, which means he's got all the Yichas in the world. Fine, okay, now that we established that. So, when he's 12 years old, I guess, he's born in 1638, and he lives to be about 64, 65 years old. He does not have a long life, uh, which is always interesting. And his health crashed when he was in his late 50s, around 60, you know, just his health just fell apart. Here's somebody whose most productive years were, you know, up to late 50s or something like that. Now, uh, he moves from Moravia. His father gets becomes the rabbi of Worms. Worms, a very famous city for Maiza on the Rhineland. I mean, we're talking over here back before Rashi, okay? He's at headquarters of Ashkenazi Yeshivaism, literally, and Minhugism and Yekiism before Rashi in the time of Rabbeinu Gershon, who was in Mainz, but, you know, there's three cities uh Spears, Mainz, and Vermeisa, they're called Shum, Shinva Mem, are old, 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 old Ashkenaz. It can't get older than that. And very hush in the sense of tradition and so forth. I am hoping, if not this year, then maybe next year, this is exactly where I'm going to go on my next trip, if it works out. Ari Elbem and I are already working on these plans to uh, have a trip that would start in Frankfurt and go straight west to uh, end up in Omaha Beach, where we will reenact the D-Day. Uh, no, seriously. Uh, and if you go to Frankfurt and you go west, then that's exactly where you go to visit. The worms, Spires, uh, Mainz um, and the Koblenz, and all these other places that are the uh, sea, birthplace, you might say, of Ashkenazism. And I mean it mean very seriously. Plus, you go farther to the west, and that's the Rashi and Tosas where it's extremely saturated in Jewish history. And uh, I've never been there. So here you have these uh, little communities. This father becomes a community. Now, I want you to listen closely, I'm going to say. When we talk about Jewish communities in the Rhineland, which is western Germany, on the Rhine River, as old as they are, by the time you get to the 1600s, they are tiny. Most of the Jews have been kicked out of Germany a century or two before. So how many families are there in in the famous old Kehillah of Worms with so many men hugging him and all the rest of it, yeah, 20, maybe 30 families. I don't think 30 families. It's nothing. And your little shul down the block is as many people, if not more. If you go to Stiebel, you, you may very well have more people than a constant community of worms. So when you read, I'm telling you this because I know the reader doesn't understand. When you see a safer, you say, this guy was a of this town, this town, you might want to do a little bit homework to find it. And how many people talk about in that town? Okay? And usually it's like, uh, in, in these t- terms, very, very small as opposed to Poland, where it usually would be much bigger. Now, here's somebody, therefore, whose father was a Rav type, and his grandfather had been the rabbi, I don't know, Worms or whatever, and this, and this guy gets hooked on Worms, uh, the city, that is. And that's <laughs> a little bit of a weird statement. Anyhow, the um, uh, and, he, and he lives there for three years, so he's born in 1638. In the year 1650, when he's 12 years old, he moves his father to Yakilanta Worms, this small community but very hush of, you know in the in the cemetery all these famous and all that sort of thing old men and uh by the way i cannot forbear to, to tell you this maybe i'm jumping from place to place he writes in a uh, very interesting chuba I, I should have done this on hanukkah but i didn't think about it, that uh maybe i'll talk about a little bit later i'm just uh plopping here uh about men and all that And in Worms, there was a, he says, there was an old minhug, you can't play cards during the year. The only time you can play cards is on Hanukkah. And when his father became the Rav, he tells us, he was really ticked off by this. Hanukkah, the days of Hallel that's when you say in a communal takana, a yekesha takana, that that's when you can play cards? That's uh, obscene. Therefore, he wanted to change the minhug to say like this, you can play cards during Christmas during the eight days of the Chag of the Gaisha holiday, but not the eight days of the Jewish holiday. But the Yekis being Yekis, he said, no, we don't chase the Manik, this is what is in the book, that's it. So the father gave up. That's the story he tells, right? Now, when he was, let's see now, um, a few years later, I mean, here's, the point I want to get at is, here's somebody who learns mainly with his father. Maybe they had a couple other guys in the room. I'm serious now. But mainly, his learning is with his father, and he doesn't go to yeshivas, as far as I can tell. And I think that's a very key point, because when you go to yeshiva, most of the great gadolim you go to yeshiva, you become part of a system. Those who learned on their own, of which there are many, and when I say on their own, I don't mean literally by themselves in a room, necessarily. I mean, one who learns like with his father and two or three other guys, which happened from time to time, they emerge as much more independent thinkers, and they're, they don't fit in the cookie uh, cutter, and that's certainly who the Chaveziar was, doesn't fit a very independent thinker. So he marries a girl from Fulda, you know, also Yekes, yeah, and he learns up a storm, and he gets a smicha, ooh, 1661, to be, you know, in his, uh, what would that be? his 20s, you know, 23 years old. And then what are you going to do if you're a guy whose father is the rub in Worms, and you're, his father died when he was young, by the way, and then, um, you know, you have all this and all the rest of it. So he becomes a rabbi, and I have in other words, a communal rabbi, in Mainz. So all the cities are near each other. I mean, they're not really very close to each other on the Rhine River. And uh, so Speer Mainz and, 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 and uh, Magenza, as I said before. So this is Magenza, And he's there for a couple of years, like five years. Again, small Kahillas, You know, uh, any decent-sized shul in Baltimore or, or Muncie, certainly, or Lakeways, were going to be bigger than the whole community. But nevertheless, Mainz is where Rabbein Gersham lived once upon a time for crying out loud. And uh, then he's offered, and they used to have small salaries, and then in 1666, so that would mean he's uh, his late 20s, so like 28, something like that, he takes to be Koblenz, which is also a town on the Rhine. All these are Yekishet cities in the Rhine area. And uh, he's there for three years. Now listen closely. And then his contract renewal was up, was not renewed. (laughs) The way it used to be, In Ashkenaz, generally speaking, in Eastern Europe, I don't know if I ever mentioned this before, was the informal system was that somebody wants to be a Rov. And so the community would elect him, or not. But let's say he was elected. So then you have a three-year contract. That was the the style. If your contract is renewed after three years, then it's lifetime. You get it? So you're up for one, one time. If you make it past that one time, the general custom was, then that's it. You're in there for life, unless you leave. So, uh, that's usually what way it was. He had the misfortune to be in a community, which was rare, in Koblenz, where by the communal taconis had to be re-elected every three years. More like American style, to, to some extent. And so, when his contract came for real, they didn't win him. I have no idea why. Uh, maybe he was too honest? I don't know. And so, what's the result? He goes to Worms. As a balabash. So, listen closely. Here's somebody who's a big Talmud Chacham, and already at the young age, his Natiya, because of his personal inclinations, because he was the son of a and the grandson of a and the great grandson of a so the natural inclination is to learn asukish mitzalibet helchasah for shalos and tshubas, for practical halakha, as they say today, not yeshivaism, in which he just learned Kedushim, but it's nothing practical. He's the enemy of that all of his life. He is rather the person who says, you know the Gomorrah. Yeah, you definitely have to learn the Gomorrah, but no question about that. But like the Marshal style, you have to know very cold all the sheetas and be mine and then know what the din is. You understand? Then know what the din is. And everybody knows. People like that are not so common. And so uh he moves to worms, but the community does not elect him as the rabbi. Uh, there's another guy, Rabbi Tumim, and he gets elected, which really ticks him off. But he doesn't want to leave. And so here you have a situation which is not very healthy. Imagine a community of 20 or 25 families. There's an elected rov. There's also the guy who ran who was not elected. He's sitting near shoal. He's the chavessioyer. And every time the rov says something, well, God wasn't there. So I don't know if he interrupted him with somebody. That I'm sure he spoke behind his back. You can't help it. You know what I'm saying? If you hear the rabbi say something that's not right, you're not going to keep your mouth shut to your friends. And so the bottom line is, it was a poison atmosphere. Uh, this is unfortunate. And uh, he even wrote something against the other guy, but he wouldn't publish it. Only in the 19th century, somebody found it and published it. But it's in a masculine journal, so you'll never see it. Anyhow, um, and I, I want to repeat: he never, he never said he wanted to publish it. Uh, but you know, it was a, it, it was a bitter situation, which could not have helped uh, human relations in general. And this is how he lives as a balabas boss uh, for 20 years now. That's just so is from 1669, 1689. That is is a very interesting business. Here you have somebody who's the rov, this reb Aron Tumim, uh, who later became the Rav in Krakow in Poland. I mean, I just want you to know, who had a bad end. Maybe the chavser gave him a heart or something like that. he was beaten to death. The other guy by a Polish nobleman. You yeah, know, it was it's a bad story. But anyhow, here you have somebody who does the rov, but there happens to be a guy in town who's a bala boss, meaning he's a taxpayer. And he sits in the shul. There's only one shul with twenty families, twenty-five families, who sits in the shul, who the whole world is sending shi'als to. You understand? Let me put it this way: I'm a rabbi of a shul. I don't think I would like somebody who is sitting in my shul. At least, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, I, maybe it wouldn't bother me. The whole world is sending shi'als to them. You get it? They're not sending shi'als to me. I'm the writer. They're sending shi'als to him. I mean, everybody. And uh, plus, he's writing other you know, kedushim Plus, in addition to that. This our uh, hero today, Chavisier wrote a. Uh, he actually wanted to write the uh, the definitive commentary to the Shulchan Aruch to the Orchaim, because at that time the Orchaim was out, you know the Shulchan Aruch itself, but without any of the things on the side. And one of the famous uh, stories of uh, rabbinic lore is he wrote a whole thing called uh, what's it called Makar and it's supposed to be like a commentary on the on on the in the Shulchan Aruch Aruchayim. And the of Rum beat him out. You know, the of Avram beat him out. It's one of those uh, stories you hear about. It. He was very frustrated because, you know, the of Avram took off, and his he never got to publish. It was only published, I think, when I was in yeshiva years ago, you know, four or five decades ago, three, four decades ago, whatever it is. And, uh, it's, uh, you know, the, it's the Mechal I believe, the Makor And it's very good in its own way. You know, it's a, it's a, not exactly the uh, the the Avram way, but, you know, it's a, it's a very good commentary on uh, on Arachim. Listen, you're dealing with a world class uh, going over here, so you wouldn't expect anything less. Has footnotes and things like that. So uh, uh, here's a guy in your shoal, as I said before, who's writing uh, a mug and a rum type work. You know, so you're the rub, and he's at this, and everybody knows this in, in, in town. It couldn't have been a pleasant situation. I don't know why he didn't take a job elsewhere. He must have liked worms. I'm serious. Um, I don't know why the other guy stayed so long, but this is, this is what happened. So for 20 years, he's writing and writing, he's a mechadish, mechadish, He also wrote other sorts of things. I remember he wrote something that was supposed to be maybe a shulchanach of its own, or maybe like a rambam of its own, or something else, I forget what it was called, Chaim or something like that. And uh, he's a very productive writer. Plus, people are sending him shalas all over the place. One of the things he does is publish the chuvis during these years of his own father, who had been a Robin died young. Plus some of his own child. This is called Chut HaShani. Uh I've seen it once in a while. The most famous Chut HaShani that comes to my mind, that I'm sitting here, is the one on the Pidyan Aben. I'm a Kohen, so I'm into the Pidyan Aben. And if you look, as I remember, or oh my memory be, I think in the Pisgah Chua, in the Shulchan Aruch, on the Pidyan Aben, it brings from him, that, you know, when you have a ceremony, if you've ever been a Pidyan Aben, the Kohen says to the father, my boy's faith, what would you prefer? You want the money or you want the baby? And then the father says, I want the I want the babies and then the coins said, Well they give me the money, you know. That's the ceremony the way it's written. Is that momish, You know, the way it goes? And the Chut HaShani said, No, it's just a ceremony, you know, we don't we don't really mean it. It's not like the <laughs> it's not like the father says, I guess, I'll keep the money, you take the baby, something like that. You know, look it up yourself if you're interested over there. It's at the beginning or somewhere over there in Hilk's Pinya in, in your day. That's what I remember from the Chut HaShani. Uh, but he published his father's shubhas, and like I say, he's sitting there as a balabas in a very weird way. And then something unusual happened, as they had their own catastrophe. Here you have to know a little bit about the politics, a tiny, tiny bit about the politics of that era, of the 17th century, uh, which is endlessly complicated, endlessly fascinating about the history of war. Basically, the king of France was Louis XIV. Louis XIV worshipped himself; that's why he made Versailles and all that. He says, "I am the state." Le Tassemois. And as far as foreign policy, he was very warlike, and he wanted to extend and conquer uh, France, the French, more territories for the French up to the Rhine River. So, if you know what I'm talking about, you have to look at a map, or just uh, forget it. And in between, where he had and the Rhine River was Alsace and Lorraine and the Rhineland and all that, he wanted to take over the whole guns of business. And without going into too many details, he got involved in a whole bunch of wars. In the 1660s, in the 1670s, in the 1680s and 90s, and then finally in the 1700s. And each one has its own name, you know. So what I'm talking about is like the third of his big set of wars, which became a world war. All the countries in Europe, uh, or many of them, got involved. It's called the Nine Years' War, or the War of the Grand Alliance, in which on the one side you had Louis XIV trying to conquer this German territory and added, you know, he claims his sister, I'm serious about this, his sister-in-law had the rights to it, because she was the wife of the Elector Palatine, or something like that, and then that gives him this close to it. So he had some kind of a claim, a distant claim, the German princes. At that time, there was no country called Germany, it was the Holy Roman Empire, with the Austrian Emperor as the Holy Roman Emperor, Le- Leopold I. And so, uh, a whole bunch of wars broke out. It's actually very, very interesting if you're a student of warfare. I kind of am. And, uh, the 17th century is uh, really cool which, uh, because he had these famous French generals like Condé and Turin and all Luxembourg. And he had these Austrian, the German generals, uh, imperial generals like Montecoccoli and these other guys. So you uh, probably have no idea what I'm talking about. Anyhow, uh, a lot of battles back and forth. So in the course of this war, the uh, the French army, and by the way, they fought for nine years, they killed a zillion people, and then it was a stalemate at the end. But meanwhile, in the course of the war, is a very famous incident in European history. The French occupied the territory I'm talking about. Now, the territory I'm talking about where worms and all this is called the Palatinate, or Palatinate, from uh, the Count Palatine. Palatine is a city, uh, a hill in Rome, but it's a title of one of the German princes. So there used to be something, it's a part of the Rhineland. If you want to have any idea what I'm talking about, there's Alsace, and Strasbourg is at the top of Alsace, and north of that. That area north of that is called the Palatinate. Very old. This is old Ashkenaz, like I said before. At the time of Rebbeinu Gersham. Been Jewish communities there like forever, forever, forever. And happens to be an area in which the Jews were not really expelled so much, like they were from the rest of Germany. Very small Jewish communities lived there under very difficult conditions, but they did live there. And that's why you say worms and spires and all that sort of thing was around, Kumbelns, and and whatever. Now. Uh, the French army occupied this territory, but then the German army, the imperial army, as they called it, was going to make a counter-invasion. So Louis XIV, who was a real mumser, he said, in order to prevent the Germans from being able to come back and attacking me from that place, let's just burn the whole place down. I mean, the Gansa Medina. Burn down the whole uh, province. Devastated. Aye, people lose their livelihood, people starve to death, At the heck with them. You understand? And so he and his uh, minister, Louvois and Bouba, they were the big fortifiers. Basically, they said, they identified all the places that needed to be burned down to the ground, and one of them was worms. That's my point. And so if you're a Jew living in this community, Le Dori 1689, was the wrong time to be there. Because the French army came in. Actually, they were in occupation already. They had seized the town and the fortress, and they just torched the whole place. So, uh, you know, it's not anti-Semitic, it's anti-worms, but the Jews are collateral damage, and the whole Cahillus disintegrated. Everybody had to leave town. Can you imagine that? Now, again, there are other towns, Heidelberg, other places, the French also did it. You see, in the German mentality, the French are barbarians. You and I are Jewish, so we think about Hitler, but if you know the German history, the French often acted barbarically to the Germans. That is true. So, anyway, the whole has ceased to exist, and, uh... Here's Yeruch Bachrach, he's, if it's 1689, so he's 61 years old. Uh, you know, uh, no, I said it wrong, he's 51 years old. Right, he's 51 years old. That's not so posh What do you do? First of all, the French burned a lot of stuff. I'm sure a lot of his writings was destroyed and all that. Was, you know, it's terrible. The Jews put the safer Torahs and things like that and hidden away, you know, someplace. But everything else was torched. And so the Kehill ceased to exist for, for over the next 10 years. Between 1689 and 1699, there was no city. And um, uh, because the war ended like in 1697 or something like that, in the Treaty of Riswick, if I remember correctly. And uh, don't worry, in the next war, which was the War of the Spanish Succession from 1702 on, Louis the, the French got creamed. And then, then the other side defeated them badly. That's the famous ancestor, Winston Churchill, the Duke of Marlborough. But meanwhile, it was bad for the Jews and Worms. And uh, they wandered. And so here's a guy, 50 years old, especially in those days, he's not in the best of health, not push it, And he probably had to go to this town for a while in that town and never was anything clear. And the whole place is a war zone, more or less. I remember he was in Heidelberg and he other places. So it really took a great toll on his health. Now, all during this time, wherever he lived, under difficult circumstances, and I don't think any money, as far as I know, uh, maybe I'm wrong, uh, but it's, it's hard to imagine, he's answering Shiloh's, Yes, and those he he still was. So it's it's interesting. It's not a rav in the typical sense. It's it's a rav without a kehilah, right? He's a have-gum-will-travel You know, he he's, 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 he he has the smarts. So imagine to use modern example, I don't know, you know, imagine a uh, original Hunter Specter, eh, something like that, you know. But with no, but just you know, living in Brooklyn by himself, you know, as, as a private citizen, or better yet. In uh in Albany or uh, you know Schenectady or some out of the way place, but that's who he was for ten years. In that there's a truth for him about uh, Minhagim, which is a very interesting one. I don't know if I'll have time to go into it tonight. The Chabzir is really somebody who deserves like a, a two part lecture of an hour and a half apiece. I'm very I'm serious because his response are extremely interesting. But nevertheless, let me just say that he told his Kahilla, uh, don't give up the ghost. Uh, hope it remains eternal. And we will get back one day, uh, he tells the other 20 families. And uh, don't forget your local minhugam. You understand? In other words, let's say you're a Jew from Worms, Midori Doris. And let's say, for example, that you have a minute to fast, I don't know, on the Tottenham, on the, on which they did on the on the anniversary of the Crusade massacres. So even though you're living in another town now, keep up your local Worms, Yakish, because one day you'll come back to Worms. That's, that's what he tells them. And it happened, you know, after <coughs> excuse me, after about 10 years, when peace was restored, the city was, was repopulated, and the Jews moved back. The Jews moved back. And uh, when they moved back, by this time they saw, I guess, maybe this guy should be drove. <laughs> so they elected him, well, thanks a lot. Here he was in 1699, See, so 61 years old, and by this time he was uh, blind and deaf or something like that. He was in bad health. And it lasted three years till he died in seventeen O two, which is just as well because then another war broke out. So, uh, what's the right word? He, you know, by the time he got the food, he didn't have teeth anymore, as the expression goes. Uh, it was like kind of a bitter uh, business, but he did end up having the job his father once had, which is the based on the worms. But that's not what he made his career about, because the person I just described was did not have the the, the typical career of uh, of a famous rabbi, because it should have been. He was elected here and stayed there for 40 years, like the of Dame in Prague or something like that. And he didn't have that, as you can see, at all. Instead, uh, he had this unusual uh, career. At the end of his life, he published, uh, you know, these last years he published a selection of the chubas that he, that survived the wars and the fires and all the rest of it. He wrote a lot more. You can imagine the person I'm talking about is somebody who probably tossed out a couple of chubas a week. And uh, very productive. And he had a selection of them, and that's called the Chabbis Yar. He published a Shalos New Chabbis You know, that's a play in words. In the, uh, in, where in Ba'midbar it says, Yar ben Menasha, is Chabbis Yar, you know, that there's a Yar ben uh, son, to conquered territory to call Chabbis And since his grandmother was Chabb, he named after his grandmother, as I mentioned yesterday in my podcast, so he, uh, you know, he wanted to honor her memory, all the rest of it. I'll tell you something interesting in the history of Shalos and Jewess. He pretty much is the first guy that started the the fashion to call a chuba safer not after your own name, but through some poetic title. Let me give you an example I'm talking about. What do you call the Shalots and, uh, the and Chubas of the Marshal? You call them the Shalots and Chubas of the Marshal? What do you call the Shalots and Chubas of the Ramal? Or, you know, you call them Shalots and Chubas of ramon. So there are exceptions, but generally speaking, people just used to say, the response of so-and-so. Um... Uh, there are some exceptions. I mean, the Mechaber called this thing, I don't know, uh Afgas Rochel or something like that. Or maybe it was a later uh, a publisher who did it. People didn't used to give specific names to their Shalos and Super. They would just say, the Shalos I'll give you an example. Like today, you say the Shalos and Shul are Moshe Feinstein. Let's pretend. like it, Imagine if it was written that way. Uh, the only exception that comes to my mind is um, the Trumas Adesha back in the 15th century, where he didn't call it, he called it the Trumas uh, Adeshen, different name, and uh, the Marm Lublin called it something like that, Maran Eni or something like that. But generally speaking, it's there. After the Chav became very fashionable, down to the present day, to use a poetic title. You know what I mean? The uh, Nota Beehud, the Chasam Sofer, you know what I mean, That Igros Moshe, you know, that sort of thing. Be'er Yitzhak. Uh, you know, you take a, a title like that. So, I'm not going to say the Chavis started, but he seems to have had an impact in that regard on the genre of the response to literature and how it's titled. It's a very, very interesting. Um, now, uh, in the Chavis as I said before, you have uh, fascinating material. If anybody, because first of all, he writes very well. And second of all, he's very independent. Like, I remember he said one time, Tosus disagrees with me. I disagree with Tosus. You know, not in a a chutzpahedek way. He's the opposite of chutzpahedek. But he was very honest. He himself quotes the famous statement, you know, amicus Plato, amicus uh, Amicus, uh, Aristotle, amicus uh, veritas. He quotes those words, which is a famous statement, which is, I love Plato, I love Aristotle, but above all, I love the truth. Uh, he uses that phrase. So, basically, it's something like this. I hold from Rashi, I hold from Tosas, but I hold the truth. If I hold the this and this and the din, different than them, then I'm going to call it like I see it. Uh, maybe I'm right, maybe I'm wrong, but I'm giving, you the, I'm giving you my best interpretation. So, that's the Yekish of virtues, you might say, which is if it's black, it's black, if it's white, it's white. You know, they won't uh, use funny language or say things that circumlocutions, things they don't, they don't mean. So as I said before, uh, the Chabziyar is endlessly uh, fascinating, and uh just comes to mind, you know, three or four of many, many uh, famous uh, chubas. One is a guy asking about learning Kabbalah, oh my goodness, he goes all over the place, and he says, Kabbalah is good, but nobody knows it. I'll tell you why. The only Kabbalah that really works is when you have a Rebbe, Mepe, Rebbe, Mepe, Rebbe. There's nobody like that. This is what he says. There's nobody like that. Everybody got it from a book. It, I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. Suppose it was me. It's not, but I'm just saying, suppose it was me. And suppose I learned Kabbalah from somebody in Baltimore, or something like that. Let's just pretend. Where did he get it from? <laughs> you know what I mean? He didn't get it from somebody who goes back to Moshe Rabbeinu or to Rizal, whatever. He may have gotten it from somebody, and that guy got it from books. So as soon as you get it from books, it's not the real Kabbalah. Plus, you then have no choice but to apply, this way what he says, scholarly analysis. So if I see, for example, I'm making this up. I see one thing in the Zohar that says this way, and something in the Zohar that says that way. Naturally, I'm logically going to be inclined to try to be a in this and this and that way. Who says logic has anything to do with Kabbalah? This is what he says. In other words, what he's saying is, of course Kabbalah is great, but nobody, Kimat, nobody knows it. And all the people who write about it don't know it. When I say no, they're applying their own. And it's not Kabbalah unless it goes from a Rebbe to a Rebbe to a Rebbe to a Rebbe to Rebbe, Rebbe, which basically doesn't exist. And so, uh, therefore, he tells the other guy, he says, oh, Kabbalah is great, but but uh, nobody knows it, therefore, spend your time in Nigla. And I remember he says, Abalabas, he says these words. You know, there's a famous thing about the, uh, what is it called, Shame Yichud. Some of you may know what I'm talking about, that the Node of Yehuda says, I don't believe in saying shame Yichud. And he was all against it, and the Hasidim counted the Node of Yehuda back and forth. And the Chavaziar is like this yeah, somebody asked me, Abalabas, What's the meaning of L'shem yichud that you say before this, uh, you know, I don't know, with film or something like that? And I told him, I don't know. And he writes to the guy, I wasn't faking, and I wasn't being, you know, modest. I talk, I don't know. <laughs> and anybody says he does know, it's full of it. So, as I say, he's at the Rosh, you know, he, the way he sees it is the way he calls it. It's a very interesting um, Teshuvah. Uh, then he has that one about wrongful death, which you find many times in the Gemara, I'm sorry, in the shallows and truth literature, one guy pulled another guy at this for a shtick, pulled out a gun and pretended to shoot the other guy. I'm saying this on a day where it's not even funny. We just had this stabbing in the Muncie, and then I saw online, you probably did also, they shot somebody, a guy shot started shooting at a church in Texas, and the guys in Texas took him down, you know, picked the wrong, picked the wrong church. You know, the minute he started shooting, they shot him. So here a guy for a shtick just pulled a gun out, like pretending to shoot the other guy, didn't mean it, Jew, to a Jew. And the other Jew had a heart attack and dropped dead on the spot. So, is, is Hechaia for killing? And second of all, well, do you need a uh, tshuva penance? You know what I mean? Uh, because obviously it wasn't premeditated, I understand that. But nevertheless, uh, and I remember he says uh, a variation of a famous story he read somewhere, which I've heard many variances of, which is that by the Goyim he says, maybe in Germany uh, a guy caused a wrongful death and therefore, the judge said, okay, you killed him, uh, even though you didn't mean to, so we're going to kill you. And he ordered him to chop off his head. But at the last minute, when the executioner swung down on him to chop off the head, he hit him with the flat part of the sword and not the sharp part of the sword, so he didn't kill him, he just whacked him. And meanwhile, the guy had made in his pants. <laughs> he was scared out of his mind. And that was the point. He said, now you know what it feels like. And then they let him go. And remember, the Chavis, that's the opposite of the Jewish law. In other words, he was, he was and shemaim by us, by the Jews, he'd be pater if he caused the wrongful death of somebody in this uh, uh, stupid way. Uh, that's another two of his. He has this thing about the midhogim. Very, very, very interesting. I can't, uh, I wish I had the time to go into this. <laughs> because a guy said, do I have to keep all my father's mi- A, a yaki from, you know, worms or something like that. Do I have to keep my father's minhagim? My father used to fast every Monday and Thursday. Does that mean I have to? Uh, that's, that's what it says in the Chuba. You know, my father used to do this and this, an extra thing here, and an extra thing there. Do I have to keep this up? And, uh, and the guy was at Hamel chacham, so he says, you know, there's a Gemara in, uh, where is it, in uh, Pesachim about the B'nai, B'nai Bashan, I think, where they said that the father used to be very from and not, the father is in the town, used to be very from and not going a boat ride on Fridays, even if it was a, a very short boat ride, so it was really chumrah, and then do the kids have to keep it up, and they say, yes, you do and then he goes to the whole discussion, I remember how are you and I listen to this, how are you and I, Chayev to keep the Tariq we weren't Meqabalit, our ancestors were, how can you say you know, that their His uh, uh, is obligating us and he says, I know, Rosh I mean, I know the usual answers, but how does it work, really? Uh, I don't remember the whole thing but you look it up there it's, uh, if you care to you'll find very very interesting material and he quotes the Balakeda and all, all the rest of it I remember he said why do I have to keep Hanukkah that's what he said you know because, was going to, because they were they were Macabo for hollow dough long ago in the Maccabean times what does that have to do with me now he's not saying it to be uh, flippant he's saying seriously he knows what is the basis halachically that you and I are hyped to keep these things today there's a whole long discussion in that kind of business um uh, and he, in that context, he says to the people from Worms, the city was destroyed, but keep up the minhagim because we're going to come back. Well, anything was a, a Kehillah Dickaman, you should keep, or something along those lines. And then he's got, oh my, oh yeah, he had a great one about a guy wrote to him and he said, come to my bar mitzvah. He said, I can't come to your mitzvah. All the big people I invited came to my mitzvah. You're the only one didn't come to my mitzvah. He said, I didn't come to your bar mitzvah. <laughs> like I said, yeah, I didn't come to your bar mitzvah. And. He said, well, then at least, if you can't do that, write me up a, uh, it's a from guy, write me up a curriculum for my son. so he could, ice rocks to be a girl. And he writes him a whole long thing. And he said, this is what you need to do. First of all, he says, it's almost impossible because you have to have an excellent Rebbe. And a Rebbe, that means a Rebbe is doing it, uh, first of all, ashamed shemaim. and second will shame the kid. And he says, they all do it for money. This is what he writes words to that effect. that came out You know, everybody does it for money and they're not that good. And uh if he goes and, and if he goes to Yeshiva to learn the Yeshivish way, which is wrong, he said it's all for lumblus and nothing practical, and it's not Masur. On the other hand, if he just has the Rebbe one on one, then he'll lose the Pilpal Khaverim. you get what I'm saying? Those, you don't sharpen yourself unless you debate in the sheer, you know, different ideas, which I thought is very interesting educationally. And then he says something like, Siddhif, what you have to do is find an excellent Rebbe, and then get a couple other boys in there for mutual benefit, like a small class, and that's the way to go. I suspect, personally, that's probably the way he was raised by his father. That's what I suspect. And then he says you have to have an order, so he talks about the importance of Mishnah, you know, the usual thing that you see. And he said also something very interesting. He said, nowadays, everybody just learns Koshal Mishput. Why? First of all, let's go for shaduchim or something like that, as he said. Second of all, you make a big Roshan when you go into business world. Thirdly, and I'm talking about reading the shulchan aruchos and mishpat, but the s'ma. That's what he. That's the way it was done. So everybody else neglects orachaim and yoredei, but he, being who he is, like I say, a halacha guy, he says orachaim and where's is where it's at 99 of the time. That's what you really have to know. You know hilchah shabbos, hilchah you know yontef, and kashrus. And all the other things like that. And the uh, Tartus you got to know, so therefore make sure you incorporate that. And then, uh, I don't know, yeah, once again, it's not the typical thing you find usually in the Shazim. So It's very uh, thoughtful and very uh, independent. So he has all those kinds of uh, unusual uh, customs. I remember also, it's very, also very German, it was a Tom Chachem, it I like this, I, um, can I, can I have a band? Uh, you know, I'm a distinguished Talmud Chacham, but I gotta make a living. I could be a I could be a fiddler or something like that at a wedding. And he said there's no uh, problem with that. There's no work there's no honest work that is dishonorable. Hmm? You know, many people say like this, it's beneath me. There's no such thing like this. If it's honest work, it's not beneath anybody. It's not beneath anybody. That's also again very egg sort of thing. I say it in a positive way. Um I all kinds of uh, business like that. So it, unfortunately it's all in Hebrew, you know. So not everybody can, but anybody who who can, I can only recommend just for interesting. If you ever look in the of Zuchabes Yar, you'll see the shalos are very, very interesting, and the answers also very interesting. And he's not hard to read, meaning he does write in rabbinic Hebrew. I mean, that part's true, you know, with a lot of Aramaic and all that thrown in. But it's very clear, very organized, and and the, l- lately they've published nice editions. I got my. uh, Edition of Chavezir. I don't know, 20 years ago, something like that, in the 90s, they published a very fine edition. I saw not long ago another one, I don't know if it's better or not. The one I have is uh, just fine. It's called uh, uh, Chavazir Hamafur. And uh, as for the other thing he wrote on the on the Orochayim, I really should have it. And the truth of the matter is, in a perfect world, I should use it. Because I remember looking in once or twice, it was very good on the Orochayim. However, I don't have it. Uh, but the Chavazir, Friends of mine, other aabo that I know about, always told me that they always are you know looking at the Hayard so here's somebody who's made his reputation by published response as they say, but um, never had, was what i don't know why but was not successful in the in the career sense of the word successful maybe he didn't know how to flatter somebody, maybe didn't know how to kiss up to people. I strongly suspected that was the case uh, but these small communities that exist once upon a time really must have created an, an, an uncomfortable situation on the human being level. Like I said before, who wants to have... <laughs> who wants to have a person sitting in the shul, in the third row, at Savad Yosef? That's not exactly what a rabbi has in mind as a perfect world. Um, and, uh, of course, he was a big Sonic. You can tell from the way he writes, he's a big exotic. Uh And, if, you know, like I say, really, uh, it's unnecessary for me to say all that. But... Um, in terms of personality, a personality really shines through. And as I said before, you know, uh, he's a person, as they call it in English, a slave to his conscience. If he sees something is right, it says it's right. If he sees something is wrong, it says it's wrong. He it can't help it. This is a very good quality, but I don't know how great it'll, it'll get you in the pulpit rabbit sometimes, because the Baal don't necessarily want to hear that. But anyway, that's who it is. Uh, there's a lot, lot more to talk about. If I had time, I would, but it's already about 40 minutes, and that's plenty long itself. And so we'll close it down over here. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.